podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are tackling the Sidiford mystery, which was not actually originally published under that name. In fact, it was originally published as the Murder at Hazelmore, which incidentally sort of is a more sensical name for it. So we can get into that. <laughs> it is. And it was first published in the U.S., right? Which is... Yes, very strange. the first time that that's happening for a novel. And this kind of begins the odd retitling between U- the U.S. and the U.K., which I don't think we've come across yet either. I'm honestly... I tried to do a little bit of my own online sleuthing as to why there are so many alternate titles for the American versions of Christie. And I have not come up with a satisfying answer. I know this is not specific to Christie. Even the Harry Potter series sometimes is a little bit differently titled, but it's curious. Well, I mean, it was called The Murder of Hazel Moore in its first UK publishing too, correct? I believe so, yeah. yeah. And then the so title, it was only a, yeah. sub- a subsequent change, which is like awfully weird because you would think that murder is usually more enticing. Yeah, she seems to tend to use murder or mystery in these titles, so maybe she she thought one is as good as the other. Or the, the, the secret of Sidiford was uh, <laughs> off the table. The Sidiford secret. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, the murder takes place at that at Hazelmore. That's the name of the house. But, the ha- but that name doesn't get, get checked too many times in the novel, whereas Sidiford really does. So maybe it was a publisher recommendation or something like that based on how much Sidiford appeared. I don't know. Maybe. It's just, it's a little bit curious. I but it did say. first appear in Good Housekeeping, too, which I, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, the days serialized, when yes. novels were serialized in magazines such as Good Housekeeping. Good Housekeeping. <sighs> All right, so let's get into what is happening here. Our victim is one Captain Trevelyan, who built and currently owns Sidiford House, as well as six surrounding cottages, which he has let to individuals who he has personally vetted. And Captain Trevelyan did not have any plans of letting Sidiford House for the winter. However, he was given an offer that he could not refuse. It was just too much money. I believe it was something along the lines of 12 guineas. And he moved, and he let these renters come in for the winter. He moved to Hazelmore, which was in a nearby village. The name of that village is Exhampton. And while living at Hazelmore on that very snowy, cold winter, he is offed by a whack over the back of the head by a heat-insulating draft sandbag. hate when that happens. His office French window has been broken into, and his office has been pulled apart. So that is the murder. That is the murder. And as to the suspects... Everybody! Guess what? <laughs> it's everyone. Um... This is a robust, a robust mystery puzzle, if ever we've read one. So first we have um, Mrs. Willett and her daughter, Violet. These are the mysterious overpayers of rent currently residing in Sidiford House. They profess to be newly arrived from South Africa. They've just come up there. They really can't specify a reason, but they uh, apparently, just the two of them, want to hole up in a random rural house. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's pretty... F- in the middle of winter. I feel like this is a bit of a theme in Christy that people who do odd things when it comes to real estate decisions are not to mm-hmm. be trusted. Remember the adventure of the cheap flat? There are other odd things that can just be put down to coincidence or people being weird in Christy novels, but odd real estate decisions always end up being significant. I think just because she herself was interested in real estate, she certainly talks about it a lot in her biography. She moved a lot. She had beautiful houses, especially as she had more means. It's like they never let up in this book, and I actually think it's kind of funny when over and over again, Violet and her mother are like, no, we just love it. The winter's so pretty, and everyone's like, mm, this is a dump, and there's no way that you're here because you want to be here. Like, the people who live there are basically calling them Dump. out on how unpleasant it is there, which is kind of funny. Right. Right. I mean, it's not exactly a winning advertisement for Dartmoor, I guess. No, no. Yeah, which is an actual place, too, and a place where I think she had some connections. But anyway, that's Mrs. Willett and Violet. Then Major Burnaby is the captain's best friend, Captain Trevelyan's best friend, and he is a resident of one of those six Sittiford cottages. He's an avid puzzle solver and outdoorsman, and he had the good luck, apparently, to win 5,000 pounds in a puzzle-solving contest. The winnings for that are presented to him by a Mr. Charles Enderby of the Daily Wire. And we'll get to Charles Enderby in a second. Then we have Mr. Rycroft. He's also a resident. He is a bird-watching enthusiast, a fan of the psychic arts, and overall busybody, I guess. Fair to say. I don't know that there's really anything else to say about him. I don't, I don't think so. Moving on to another cottager. This is Miss Caroline Pursehouse, who is a spinster and an invalid and another busybody. But she <laughs> is very, very much astute. I feel like Caroline is kind of a busybody spinster name for Christy. I believe there was another famous Caroline in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, who kind right. of was the same character or similar Very character. Much a similar character. Right? Caroline Shepard. And Miss Purse House uh, lives in the cottage. At least part of the time, her nephew comes to stay with her, and his name is Ronald Garfield. And she tolerates him, but she totally sees through him and knows that he only comes and visits her for these long periods because he wants her money once she passes. <laughs> Ronnie, as he's referred to, is a total money moocher layabout, a loser. He's not very bright. He even openly moons over women who he's interested in and, of course, rather too openly moons over the money that he wants from his aunt. He is not pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. He is the grossest Tinder date that you ever agreed to go on, Um, I actually am going to argue that because we haven't gotten to, I think, one of the most vile, scary Tinder date characters yet who appears in this book, but I will let you know when we get to him. All right. So then next we have presumably not the scary Tinder date, Mr. Duke. He seems just like a very staid, boring gentleman who lives in a cottage, but he's very mysterious. He does socialize, but nobody really knows anything about his background. Then we have Mr. and Mrs. Curtis, also in one of those six cottages. Mrs. Curtis, at least, is is yet another busybody. I think Mr. Curtis just kind of wants everyone to shut up so that he can smoke his pipe in peace. Seems right. So then we have Captain Wyatt. This Um, is the scary, awful, worst Tinder date ever. This guy is sketchy. Well, you know what? I actually think that Captain Wyatt would be played by Christopher Walken. That was how I envisioned him. (laughs) That softens him a little bit. Yeah, I'll give you see, that. It, I'll give you see, that. It softened it for me. Look at this lion. He's the king of the jungle. Huge mane out there. 
He's laying down under a tree in the middle of Africa. He's so big. He's so hot. He doesn't want to move. He kind of lingers outside. He has very strong opinions about other people, but he doesn't like socializing. He has an Indian manservant named Abdul in his rural cottage with him. At some mm-hmm. point, some of the neighbors make a joke that Abdul could just keep saying that Captain Wyatt was unavailable, but he could be long dead. Right, because he disappears <laughs> for long stretches at a time, and Abdul is the only person that anyone sees in that cottage. Right. Yeah. Captain Wyatt, he has an eye for the ladies that we are given a little window into that I found distinctly unpleasant. But if I ever have to reread those passages, I will just imagine Christopher Walken saying them and yeah, it will be all it, better. Yeah, I think it makes it much more palatable than Ronnie. Absolutely. So then we have Mr. Evans, who is Captain Trevelyan's servant. He recently got married, which was much to the chagrin of Captain Trevelyan, a known woman hater. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that exactly means. I'll be honest, because we've come across this term before. Before, I believe the military, ex-military character in Roger Ackroyd was also described as a woman hater. I thought it was code for gay. It's not at all. It just kind of means someone who's not comfortable around women. I don't, I don't think that Christie is suggesting that, but... It's one of those terms that just comes across so differently reading it now than I'm sure it was meant in 1931. Well, I mean, it's also implied that, you know, nobody has an explanation for why he hates women that much, just that perhaps he'd been spurned by one in his youth. So I think maybe what really he is is like one of those MRA people. What's MRA? Men's Rights Advocacy. Oof. God, with that and Captain Wyatt and Ronnie, this is... (laughs) Shaping up to be a Molly crew is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, where's Miss Violet Marsh when you need her in her women's rights? So then we have Mrs. Jennifer Gardner. She is the sister of Captain Trevelyan. She lives in the next actual town over. And her husband, uh, he was in the war, and he's, oh, so damaged. She can't walk. He has PTSD. He doesn't remember things. And so she's really desperate to scrounge up money for experimental treatments. Right. And then our final suspects, we're just going to group them together here because this is an insanely long suspect list. The siblings, Pearson, Brian, James, and Sylvia. And these are the niece and nephews of Captain Trevelyan. They stand to inherit a large sum of money upon his demise. Jennifer Gardner, also as Captain Trevelyan's sister, will inherit the same amount of money. It's a lot of money because the captain was really cheap, and he mm-hmm. apparently had saved up a lot. From what we know, Brian Pearson seems to be far away in Australia. Sylvia lives in Greenwich with her husband, a rather nasty author <laughs> named Martin Daring. Yeah, Daring. he's a piece of work. He's a piece of work. Another yeah, piece speaking, of work. Speaking oh, of all the men in God, this novel. This is, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'll be honest. It didn't come across. I didn't finish the novel thinking about all of the unpleasant <laughs> Until men right now. in it. But there's really a lot of nasty, 
unpleasant male characters in the story. Anyway, one of the more pleasant, perhaps, men is Jim Pearson, who is the final nephew of Captain Trevelyan, and he, unfortunately for him, had checked into the pub at Exhampton, which is where Hazelmore is, the day of the murder, and then he flees on the first train out the morning after. So suspicion falls on him, and he is promptly arrested and charged. So, yeah, with that extended list of people out of the way, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. The residents of the Sidiford cottages gather together at Sidiford House with the Willets, who are known to be incredibly social, for tea and company on this wintry evening. They decide to play a game of table turning, which is basically like a combination of Ouija and a seance. And it's all fun and games until the table spells out the name of the captain and tells the crowd that he's now apparently dead. And it is at 5.25 p.m., which we hear repeatedly after, so remember that time. Mm-hmm. Everybody's very freaked out. The lights get turned back up. People accuse each other of pushing the table. And despite everyone's warnings, the generally upright Major Burnaby gets completely panicked. And he insists that he must, despite the weather, hoof it all the way to Exhampton to check on his friend as he's just completely spooked. He is deeply uncomfortable at the situation and worried about his friend. Right. We mentioned it's a wintry evening. It's just snowing, which Mm -hmm. is why everyone's so concerned that this older gentleman is walking, I believe it's six miles. Um, Correct. And upon arriving in Exhampton at Hazelmore, the major knocks on Captain Trevelyan's front door. He doesn't get any answer. He becomes more concerned. He rings up the town doctor, Dr. Warren, and they return to Hazelmore together, only to discover a back window broken and mm-hmm. Captain Trevelyan inside in his office, dead. Dr. Warren roughly estimates the time when this would happen and in a horrified manner, Major Burnaby says, could it have been 525? And the doctor is astonished that he would mention that time because that time fits perfectly. It's like right pretty much in the middle of the possible window for when this murder would have taken place. So our assumption is that maybe the seance is real and the dead can speak and a murderer is on the loose. And worst of all... James Pearson, as we have already noted, who's a beneficiary should the captain die, he has checked in to town. And then we find out the next day he has fled. So clearly all assumptions are on him. So that's the world as it appears to be. Luckily for us, we have in this novel, not Hercule Poirot, not Miss Marple, neither Tommy nor Tuppence Beresford, but one Emily Trefusis, who is Jim Pearson's fiance and convinced for obvious reasons that he is innocent and who takes it upon herself to prove said innocence. And Emily goes to Sidiford and gets down to business. So the world as it actually is, of course seances and ghosts are not real, unless maybe this is the mystery of the blue train <laughs> and, you're, <laughs> and you're having a little bit of a moment with a fellow lady ghost. I mean, uh, it's always possible. That's it always happens. possible. But not Emily Trefusis. Let's discuss the clues and how we get to our resolution. Take it away, Catherine. Clue number one, that whole seance thing. 
the seance tells the attendees that the captain has been murdered, but what is our deduction here? A ghost did not do it. A person did it, obviously. That means that someone sitting at that table had to have either been responsible in some way or to have known that the crime was either already committed or going to be committed. It's key in Christie to just disregard the spiritual possibility that's never the answer. Clue number two, the emphasis on the timing of that seance announcement. Yet again, here we have a fixation on a specific time of death, and that more or less always means that something has to be wrong with that specific time of death. Either it's not the right time, or more likely, we're meant to firmly believe that that is the time of the death, thereby obfuscating any other signs for alternate times and vindicating certain alibis incorrectly. So a super, super astute reader, more astute than I, would at least know that the death could not have occurred at 525. Well, here's the thing that's actually... Or probably didn't occur at 525. Right. But here's the thing that's extra complicating in this mystery is that Emily thinks what you did not think. Emily thinks, well, perhaps 525 is just made up. And so Emily takes it upon herself to ask Dr. Warren, what's your relative time window, buddy? Mm-hmm. Which, Kemper, I know you have complained about in the past that doctors are oh so certain about the time. And so now here we have a heroine who is basically saying, hold up, when could this murder have actually happened? Yeah, no, I actually noted that. It was funny that this is the next novel after Murder at the Vicarage where I had that issue of dating the death way too exactly. And the doctor even said, and the doctor says in this novel, like, oh, yeah, that's such a trope, being able to fix the time of death. But that's not really true. And I'm like, you just used that in your previous novel, but it's fine. And, I, and I appreciated do- and Dr. that. Warren, and Dr. Warren, more or less, previously said, like, oh, yeah, I can just definitely nail this to within the hour. And then he basically tells Emily, oh, well, I guess, you know, I mean, it could have been, like, another two hours earlier. It could have been, like, you know, we didn't find the body until after eight. Could have been a pretty decent-sized window there. Because what she's interested in finding out is if perhaps her fiancé actually came to find the body, and that's why he fled. Not that he'd had some sort of tiff or argument with his uncle alive. Right. But that he had come across his corpse and freaked out. Right. So what she does, what Emily does, is to direct the line of questioning for herself and therefore the reader as to whether the death occurred before 525. And I guess if you are an astute reader of just gargantuan proportions, you might then further deduce that perhaps the true answer is that the crime happened after 525, which is actually what happened. And I I mean, one thing I'm getting on rereading these Christie novels is how crucial timing is, the timing Mm -hmm. of the murder. It's often... talk about it with the trains all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it often creates this domino effect within the logic puzzle where if you 
get to that point where you can say with absolute or at least near certainty, okay, I'm pretty sure that the murder actually didn't happen at X time, even though everyone's saying it did. I'm pretty sure it happened at Y time. Then the dominoes you have to knock over to get to the solution are often fairly reasonable or not too insanely convoluted. The timing issue is often the one that's like the really hard one to get and and the crucial one. It's like the linchpin to solving the mystery. Number three, we have a repeated emphasis in this on the fact that we should follow the money to track down the killer. So it's a lot about the captain's will. Obviously, as a result, we're looking at the three Pearson siblings and we're looking at his sister. Yeah, they all have reasons to want the money. And I actually think this is one of Christie's clever clues. It's actually, this is actually really clever. I don't want to call the reasoning for murder delightful, but like, (laughs) there's something delightful about the motive in this mystery. So basically, the reason why we're so delighted by it is that there is one other major receipt of money that happens in this novel. That's and just we're told about it repeatedly. Repeatedly. But the, but the thing about it is, is it is like seems so not obvious. It just seems so insignificant. And right. so basically, Major Burnaby receives this 5,000-pound prize from the journalist Charles Enderby, who has come down from his newspaper to give him this $5,000 check. And that's why Charles Enderby is is on the scene. And he ends up aiding Emily Trefusis in this investigation. And the two of them kind of set up a Tommy and Tuppence-esque team right. uh, for the course of the novel. And th- that's delightful as well. But that money prize is significant, even though it's just so casually mentioned, because we're also told multiple times about how Captain Trevelyan had this habit in the acrostics and crossword contest that he used Puzzle to enter con- yeah. that he would get, he would give other addresses as his address. He gave his manservant, Mr. Evans's address because he didn't think that if he gave his true address, he would win the prize. They would see that he it was rich. Like they were going to a wealthy gentleman. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like, do you remember when Jennifer Lopez's mother won like $2 million in slot machines at Atlantic city? And people were like, seriously, <laughs> Really? No, wait. Is this a thing that happened? Yeah, yeah. My mother's a huge gambler. <gasps> wait, I know this. Dude, yeah. And some people know know this, know that. Because, oh, I know this story. No, because it was a big story where she won like $2.4 million on the slots, my mom. That seems unnecessary. He and the major are very competitive with each other about these puzzle-solving contests. Right. So, I mean, as a result, also, we don't have any reason to suspect, actually, that Major Burnaby didn't win it on his own. Right, we don't. But we are given the information that Captain Trevelyan would put other people's addresses, and we know that he had won he things in the past. He was very good at winning prizes for right. crossword puzzle solving. Right. So the ultimate deduction to get from that is that the prize was actually Captain Trevelyan's, and Major Burnaby has a 5,000-pound motive to kill Captain Trevelyan. So that he can collect the winnings. His crossword puzzle winnings. Yeah, his crossword puzzle winnings himself. I mean, it's just funny, too, the disconnect between getting a prize from a newspaper for something as innocent 
as a crossword puzzle and then murdering for that is just such classic Christie. It's like nothing is sacred, you know? No, God, my beloved crossword puzzles, too. I mean, it's so tragic. Um, so it's also, spoiler spoiler alert, the major did it. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and we're getting there. Let's just, but, let's just go with now the, the, the last clue here. So the last, the last clue is actually the big one. Yeah. And it's a pair of missing boots. And so Evans, the manservant, has repeatedly mentioned to the authorities and to apparently anybody else who will listen that when they were inventorying the captain's house, he noticed that the captain's favorite pair of boots or whatnot had gone missing. And it seems like very arbitrary, but eventually this gets passed on to Emily. So what is the possible deduction here? Well, it's a really weird thing to go missing. You basically have to assume either somehow they were involved in committing the crime or somebody took them, which would be really weird. Mm -hmm. Or there has to be some other reason that they can't be found when the house is being searched. Right. And suffice it to say, it turns out to be that. And this is why I think that this novel cheats a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not actually mentioned that they're ski boots. I totally agree. We're never told that they're ski boots. I know why, because once the word ski is used... It's going to just give everything give away. away. The, the word ski is used so sparingly mm-hmm. in this novel yeah. up until we get our big reveal because she didn't want to tip her hand. But it is a little bit of a cheat. So speaking of that big reveal, yeah. it actually is like really neatly summed up. Emily, because everybody has told her all of this information because she's charming and pretty, it's mentioned many times about how pretty she is. She gets this note about the boots, and so she gets access to the house. And then eventually, because there was telltale soot in the fireplace, she does what I probably would not have done, so, you know, good on her. She rolls on up her shirt sleeves, and like a modern woman, she puts her hands at the chimney and ends up pulling down a pair of ski boots, which are the missing boots. She brings them to Inspector Naricott, who we have not even mentioned because, to be honest, he really doesn't matter. He doesn't, yeah, the, the detective in this story, the detective in this story is Emily Trefusis. Inspector Naricott Correct. is the official detective, but he's not much of a presence. So she brings them to Inspector Naricott, who's been spending really an extraordinary amount of time at the cottage of the mysterious Mr. Duke, who we mentioned earlier. And then the novel cuts away. Right. And we're kind of left hanging. Until we're told exactly what she figured out when she took those boots and was rummaging around in the cupboard. And basically what she figured out, she measured the ski boots to the skis that were Mm -hmm. in the cupboard. And there were actually two pairs of skis in the cupboard, which we were, to be fair to Christy, told very early on in the story that there were two pairs of skis in Captain Trevelyan's cupboard. We, along with like, along with like a tiger skin, and along like with like animal I mean, it is a laundry list of yeah. um, similar to the fact that Lawrence Redding was a good actor was just shoved into a list of attributes about Lawrence Redding and Murder of the Vicarage. We right. are given the fact, you know, we're given the information these two pairs of skis. I guess beware the laundry lists 
in Christie novels. There's another rule, rule number 8,932. But we should be, like, writing these down at some point. I know. (laughs) We'll post it on Twitter. When she compares the ski boots to the skis, they have to fit one pair of skis because one of the pairs of skis is Captain Trevelyan's and they're Captain Trevelyan's boots. So they don't fit the other pair. Correct. So what she realizes is why is there this pair of skis in here that's not Captain Trevelyan's? Yeah, it's it's not the boots, it's the skis. The boots lead to the issue of why is is there this random pair of skis? And of course the, and that is the big, the big, which, and it is so simple and elegant. It's so Christy because the big, you know, men hurdle to get over here is well there's no way Major Burnaby could have anything to do with Captain Trevelyan's death because he couldn't have gotten there he was six miles away he had to trudge through the snow by the time he got to Captain Trevelyan's house of course Captain Trevelyan was dead we saw him knocking on the door and not getting in and calling the doctor and going through that whole rigmarole he skied that's it he skied. You can ski and, in the and snow. Downhill. And, and downhill. And it was downhill. It's mentioned. It yeah. is mentioned. I love that that's a clue. Like, the topography from Sidiford House to Hazelmore being downhill is a clue, which is kind of cool. Well, it's funny because that is actually brought up at some earlier yeah. point because it takes, like, some effort to get there. But it's Every so... little detail might be important or am I not? That's why it's so hard. And also, the reason that she brings these to Mr. Duke's cottage is it turns out that Mr. Duke is like an incredibly famous former Scotland Yard investigator who just happens to have decided to retire to this rando cottage in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it's time to to start talking about this. I think that this is a, with the exception of the fact that we are not told they are ski boots, which is a big problem. But with the exception of that, I think the solution is elegant. I think it's clever. I think it's pleasing. And I liked it very much. That is the mystery plot. As in every Christie mystery puzzle of novel length that we've now read, there are a lot of side plots swirling around that mystery plot. And I think in this book, they're particularly bad. Yeah, so the resolution to this, everybody's back at Seance Part Due at Sidiford. And then Emily, the inspector, and former inspector, now Mr. Duke, come in and they place the major under arrest. Right. Again, we've already mentioned this, but it turns out that he had all this debt from idiotic land speculation. Um, right. We're told that. I mean, we are told back many. To, back to the real estate plot. Back to real estate. And also, you know, we're told multiple times, yeah, that Major Burnaby is really bad with money, which reminded me of Dr. Shepard in The Murder of mm-hmm. Roger Ackroyd. That's apparently often a significant clue. If someone is bad at money, that is often a motivation for murder. So... Noted. Well, especially when you, especially when you have to cover the money that you lost. Right. Not ju- it's, it's not just being a matter of being poor or being frugal or something. It's a matter of placing bets you can't cover. Yeah. So he gets hauled off, but in the course of this entire novel, there are about a billion red herrings. I mean, yeah, you can't a even, lot they're, of red and they're herrings. so insignificant that you can't even call them side plots. I've mentioned this in the past that my appreciation for the way that Christie weaves these mystery puzzles has increased since we've embarked on this project because I realized that a lot of the red herring clues are actually side plot clues, which means that even though they have nothing to do with the mystery, they're not totally random, and we can at least figure out what they mean in a somewhat satisfying way because they inform 
from some other story that we've been following, be it romantic or whatever. Often they're not amazing side plots or anything, but I just thought here they were particularly thin or even non-existent. Like the only one that to me reaches the very low bar of side plots and past mystery puzzles is what was going on with Mrs. Willett and her daughter Violet. The reason why they moved to the Sidiford house in the winter is that Mrs. Willett's husband and Violet's father is a convict because he got kicked in the head by a horse a number of years ago. Um, and now he commits crimes. And now he commits crimes, kind of like the sleepy sickness that we came across. Right, right, and murder at the vicarage, the yes. hideaway plan for this convict father ended up not working and also ended up implicating Brian Pearson, who happened to have met them on a boat over from Australia, totally coincidentally. So that is as good as it gets, though, in this novel, because some of the other red herring clues are as simple as we are just simply told that Ronnie, Miss Pursehouse's nephew, happens to be the godson of Jennifer Gardner, the sister to Captain Trevelyan. Right. So there was a scene where we saw them meeting for tea, Mm -hmm. and that's why. That's it. Well, and presumably he's trying to get money off of her, too, because he's a scumbag loser. Really? There was another random connection between the husband of Sylvia, Captain Trevelyan's niece, and a female relation of Mr. Rycroft. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, let's leave it at that. (laughs) But then also the whole reason why Sylvia is suspicious and her husband is, is because it turns out he's actually cheating on her. And it also turns out that Jennifer Gardner's PTSD soldier husband is cheating on her with his nurse. With the hospital nurse, yeah. In in their own house. In their own house. I mean, it really has nothing to do with anything. It's just terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. And then this actually just rubs me equally the wrong way, I think. But James Pearson, who are a really plucky heroine, is obviously out to save. Emily gets told somewhere in the middle of the book that he also has a tendency to speculate wildly on investments that he should not. And he's decided that he's going to be funding that by embezzling. So that's why he goes down to visit Captain Trevelyan in the first place is because he realizes there's going to be an early audit. Right, and he's desperate for an infusion of cash so that he doesn't essentially go to jail for embezzlement. Embezzlement. (laughs) And perhaps the most successful and satisfying side plot that is happening throughout the course of this story is the love triangle between, or among, I should say, Emily Trefusis and Charles Enderby, who is the journalist who is investigating alongside her, and then Jim Pearson, who is mainly absent from the story, but is right. Emily's fiance. And there's this whole, who is she going to choose at the end of the story? Here's the funny thing. The way you I thought she was going to choose Enderby? I guess I've grown as a reader because I distinctly remember the first time I read this novel, which was not even that long ago. I think it was about 10, 15 years ago. I remember being shocked that she didn't choose Charles Enderby and annoyed by it. This time around, honestly, I was kind of hoping that she had a Kelly Taylor from 90210 I Choose Me moment. (laughs) That's not dated as a reference. (laughs) I'm not in my Um. 30s. Late 30s. Brandon, I can't accept this. Wait. Please. 
choose me. I hope you understand. I love you both till the day I die. They were both poor choices. One of them is a loser embezzler who's had to be saved in the course Although of the story. he's apparently very attractive. He is apparently very attractive, that's true. As much as it's mentioned that Emily is pretty, it's mentioned that her fiancé is handsome, so there's that. <laughs> but Charles Enderby, <laughs> even though he's clever and he's conniving and he's going places, he's awful, and he and he has no idea who Emily Trefuses really is. He thinks that he's saving her, even though she's completely got him wrapped around her finger, so he is in no way a good match for her, and I would never would want her to end up with him. No, he's really just oblivious and yeah. also not very bright. No, he's not. He's scrappy. He's a good striver. He's a striver. Right. He's a striver, but he doesn't really have any impressive brains or anything like that. Basically, all the men in this story are really awful. It's interesting because, and this is where I will inject just for a second what's happening in Dame Agatha's own life, which we haven't talked about in a while, but at this point, her life had settled down from the whole disappearance thing, and she was licking her wounds from her divorce with Archie Christie, and she rather quickly, much to her surprise, actually met someone. She had met Max Malowin at this point, and in fact, this is one of the few books that's dedicated to Max Malowin, and... I think it's interesting that the book, in some ways at least, centers on who this woman is going to choose, and she obviously had chosen one type of a man and now is choosing a very different sort of a man. I'm not really making any parallels between James Pearson and Charles Enderby and Archie Christie and Max Mallowan, even though I guess I kind of am, but I think those sorts of issues were just on her mind, and it's interesting to note that. So let's talk really briefly before we get into our rankings about the adaptation of this novel because it is a doozy of an adaptation. We only have one adaptation of this novel. It is actually part of the Agatha Christie's Marple series in the aughts. This is season two, the last episode with Geraldine McEwen as Miss Marple. Obviously, this is not a Miss Marple story, but what that series did was to take non-Miss Marple stories and shoehorn her into the mystery. We already covered one of these actually with the secret of chimneys um which was turned into a miss marple story not particularly successfully but certainly more successfully than this one because i'm just going to be honest this was one of the worst adaptations i think i've ever watched of an agatha christie novel i would also say this the uh secret of chimneys is a book that we both hated so much that that we didn't care yeah i don't don't think we're going to be as sensitive about the changes to it to make it a miss marple that's true and we're not going to go through this with a fine-tooth comb because, honestly, it's not really worth it or deserving of that attention. But... um, Well, you did have an all-star cast. It did have an all-star cast. So Timothy Dalton, who we last mentioned playing the role of Archie Christie in Agatha... Indeed. in the late 70s, he is here and still looking pretty foxy. Looking, I know, looking pretty not, good. Not bad. As Clive Trevelyan, the Captain Trevelyan of the novel, who is perhaps about to become Prime Minister, which means that five minutes into this adaptation, we first see him in a flashback blowing up a Egyptian tomb in 1927, because sure. Why and not? then speaking with Winston Churchill. Indeed. So there's that. <laughs> that happened. It was very confusing. (laughs) 
it was very confusing. The other two actors of note, one of them is Lawrence Fox, a.k.a. D.S. James Hathaway on Inspector Lewis, a favorite of Catherine's. I know. And mine. Be still my heart, Lawrence Fox. Yeah, I'm playing a very different character here. He played Jim Pearson, very much playing up the ne'er-do-well aspect of Jim Pearson. I think on most takes, he was swigging from a flask. That was... He uh, was. That, he was that, like, the, the, very, the very opposite of D.S. Hathaway, who is good with his pint, but otherwise he's so by the rules. Absolutely. And then Carrie Mulligan is here playing not one but two characters, both of them named Violet and happening to look exactly alike, because that was also <laughs> a thing that happened in this story. She plays Violet Willett and also this woman from that 1927 flashback who Clive Trevelyan impregnated and who later died after giving birth to a son who would grow up to become the character Charles Enderby in the novel, who for inexplicable reasons is renamed Charles Burnaby, but let's not even talk about that. And he is in fact the murderer in this version of the story, not Major Burnaby, who has now been renamed in the adaptation as Mr. Enderby. The way that he did it is similar. Miss Marple is in hardly any of the episode, which is absurd. If you're going to try to shoehorn Miss Marple into a non-Miss Marple story, then you should try to actually use Miss Marple, but they don't. She's honestly sitting at what would be the Sitiford house, not with any of the other characters, just making random observations when someone happens to come by and talk to her. It's really, really bizarre. The whole Egypt backstory I found to be totally cheesy and unconvincing. All of my issues with the way that these adaptations are shot and their weird wiping transitions as if we're watching Star Wars. I'm so deeply not into this series of adaptations of Miss Marple. We are both on the same page as far as that goes. They're also hammy. And the really weird thing is, you know, we've talked about this before, that the Poirot adaptations get so much darker. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think for us that some of them are really quite good. A lot of them are still very good. It's just that they take on this angst that is less prevalent in the earlier episodes. And then the weirdest thing about this is that at the same time period, so early aughts, these Miss Marple mm-hmm. adaptations just become like cheese fests. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean I don't I don't know what the strategy there was, but it's not one that I feel particularly good about in the case of the Miss Marples. A hundred percent agree. Thank God we have the Joan Hickson versions for actual Miss Marple stories. Again, this is just one where it's the only adaptation of this story that exists. So we felt obliged to watch it and discuss You're it. You're welcome. And now we're done. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm terribly sorry, Miss Marple. I'm hopelessly confused. Aren't you, darling? Pretty much so, yes. Uh, so did the scorpion... Egypt have anything to do with why he was killed or not? It had everything to do with it, as I learned last night from Miss Pursehouse. It was in Egypt that Captain Trevelyan chose a course of action that will result in his death 25 years later. But it wasn't the murder of Arthur Hopkins. In a way, it was. Hopkins had a sister. Her name was Violet also. And I believe Violet Willett reminded the captain so very strongly of Violet Hopkins that he believed he'd been granted a second chance of happiness. 
So let's move on to our rankings. First one is plot mechanics. And I actually think that boots versus ski boots aside, which is significant, that's a significant ding to plot mechanics. I think that the mystery plot is rather well done. I guess based on the fact that we're never told they're ski boots, which is a total cheat. You're right, Catherine. And the fact that the side plots and red hair and clues are just so patently ridiculous. You had suggested a six, and when I was thinking about it, wanted to go higher, but I'm actually, after this discussion, thinking a six is exactly right. Excellent. Well, then let's move on to the next category. Um, so, <laughs> plot credibility. Here's the thing. I completely understand why Burnaby did what he did. So that makes total sense. At the same time, it's hard to separate all the red herrings out from the actual murder plot. And that's where... The plot credibility for me really falters. There are so many coincidences. Every single Pearson sibling has a reason to be in this middle of nowhere village. Well, Sylvie is not. Sylvie is not actually there. Well, no, but her husband is somehow related to one of the men who just happens to have one of these cottages. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, credibility is holistic, right? It's not just the credibility of the way that the mystery plot works, but if there are too many coincidences that are providing the confusion for the overall effect of the novel, that implicates plot credibility. I accept that. I still think that because the mystery itself and the motivations for what Major Burnaby does are totally baked into who he is and the setup of those characters that were given, even though it's difficult to ferret it out, but once you know, it all makes so much sense. I think that's so good that I would I would be okay with giving the this one a six as well. I think it should actually be higher, but I take your point on the coincidences and just the convenience of those side plots of taking something away from plot credibility. How do you feel about a six? Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with a six. I think this is our first mystery puzzle that does not feature a series-long character in the guise of a detective, because I think all the other mystery puzzles we've done have either been Poirot's, and then, of course, we just did Miss Marple. Well, and our good friends Bundle and That's Battle. true, yeah. Let us never forget Bundle and Battle. Let us never forget Bundle and Battle. And then the other... We had Tommy and Tuppence. We had Tommy and Tuppence, and we also had Colonel Race for right. The Man in the Brown Suit. So this is the first time we actually do not have any series-long characters. So we are just going to count our book-specific characters category twice. And I think we're in agreement here that this book does remarkably well when it comes to characters. Maybe not remarkably well, but it does very well when when it comes to characters. I feel like Christy has been doing this now for over a decade, and these characters come off the page much more memorably than they did in her earliest novels, certainly. Even though there are a dizzying number of people and working out the plot is confusing, it's actually not difficult for me to keep all of the personalities in Sidiford in those various little cottages distinct. Miss Purse House is so well-defined as that acidulated spinster and her bumbling nephew Ronnie and the horrible Captain Wyatt and Mrs. Curtis talking her husband's ear off and Emily Trefuses herself, who if there is any sort of detective character in the story, she would be it. I thought she was particularly well drawn. She's a little bit of a holdover from those thriller heroines, but more real and 
because we have a mystery plot to hang her shenanigans on, I wasn't in any way bothered by any of her pertness or or any, no, and any of that. She's, she's very bright. That sounds condescending slightly, but I don't mean it that way. I, I mean that I like her pluck. I like her, you know, getting her hands dirty just sort of gung-ho attitude and the fact that it's all for this jerk who's an embezzler is not great this is i think the most telling statement she makes in terms of her choice of jim pearson she says in some ways i really think that men are beasts that's why it's so nice when, when one finds a man on whom one can really rely And it's a bit of a dark statement because what she means by being able to rely on Jim Pearson is that he's weak and she understands his weakness and she knows what she has to do to keep him in line and she'll have a happy life because she knows exactly what she's getting with him. And other men who are unpredictable or not as easy to control, that way lies misery. And again, just to bring up the Archie Christie angle, I think Agatha Christie was certainly speaking from a bit of experience there of having gone through this horrible divorce. So, Gosh, that's not depressing at all. No, no, not even a little bit. I will say the other thing about the character standpoint in this, which is less depressing, is that Charles and Emily, but Charles in particular, is very clever. Not clever in a crime-solving way because he's not that at all, but he's witty. I'll put it that. That's better phrasing. He's, he's right. witty. Right. No, he's totally witty, and their banter is entertaining, and it certainly keeps the pages turning. I just I found one tiny section, and this is when Emily meets Miss Pursehouse, and they're two such good characters, and I love Emily's self-awareness here where she says, she's just like me, only I happen to be rather good-looking, and she has to do it all by force of character. And that's so the character of Emily Trefuses, where she's A, acknowledging she's good-looking, because she's like, I know it, I don't care, I'll own it, I'm hot, but also realizes that she uses it very much to her advantage, and then further has the ability to realize that Miss Pursehouse has just as much going for her as she does, except she just doesn't happen to be physically attractive. The other thing that I would say, and this can also possibly go into setting and tone, But it's not just the characters who are pretty witty in this. It's the actual writing of everybody. Christie's writing in this is breezy, and people are just tossing little witty asides left and right. Here's one that I tagged. Mr. Dacker's the lawyer for Jim Pearson. Emily's talking to him, and she says, You don't think him guilty, Mr. Dacker's asked Emily. Curiously enough, I do not, replied the lawyer. In some ways, Jim Pearson is a most transparent young man. He hasn't, if you will allow me to say so, Emily, a very high standard of commercial honesty. But I do not believe for one minute that his hands sandbagged his uncle. Hmm. <laughs> like hmm. Everything in that paragraph is a little bit arch. Totally. There's also, there's a lot of the bursts of Christy humor, which are so important to these stories. And again, what she never gets credit for. Ronnie, at one point, is talking about the cats that he has to care for, for his aunt. And he says, you haven't seen her cats, have you? I had to comb one of them this morning and look at the way that brute scratched me. He's such a pathetic character. Just the image of him having to groom his aunt's cats. And also her, like, complete sadistic enjoyment of the fact that this 
jerk just wants her money when she's dead. And so she just has no qualms about him painting everything and grooming the cats. Yeah. I actually underlined this because I thought that it was questionable writing, but I've now come completely around and decided that it's a brilliant description. Christy describes Emily Trefusis's wardrobe as, quote, demure and provocative. <laughs> And I kind of, I kind of do know what she means by that. Yes, I think I do too. Right, especially when you meet Emily Trefusis. Yeah, yeah, that's actually kind of brilliant, demure and provocative. <laughs> okay, well, so yeah, I mean, I, I think characters. We were thinking a seven. Is that right? I think a seven yeah. is a good strong number. And then setting and tone, yeah, it, it's working. I actually, I feel like I have a sense of where this is. I mean, the certainly the fact that there's a snowstorm and we're in the middle of winter. I remembered that before cracking open this book again a decade later that this book was set in the middle of winter with a massive snowstorm and it is certainly well described. I can see the moors and feel the coldness and see those depressing little cottages that were built, you know, on that land in this deserted village and skiing downhill the twilight. There is a bit more of a sense of place here. Yeah, the pixie cave where the kicked in his head convict apparently has got pneumonia. Oops. And dying. (laughs) And is dying, but it's better for him anyway. So says his daughter. Really really cheerful (laughs) end note to this book. So I think it does. It does pretty well there. What do you think? What should we give it? Like a six. Okay. Six works. And then let's let's very quickly do second this time because there's there's not a whole lot there. I am inclined to lop off one point, mainly for Abdul. Oh yeah, not not great. <laughs> Abdul's not great. He says Sahib a lot. He has broken English. He's referred to by Mrs. Curtis, actually, as a nasty black fellow. Not that I think that's a I don't think Christy is condoning those words, but it's supposed to be maybe slightly comical that she's saying that. I don't know. It's just a little bit of Things everything involving him is uncomfortable. Everything involving him is, un- is uncomfortable. So, yeah, you know, and a little a little bit of the colonials and how uncivilized they are. Quite a, there's, like, quite a large amount of weirdness involving the servants for everybody in this novel. Mm-hmm. The servants for the Willets, the relationship with Evans is weird. Yeah, there's a lot of casual denigration of servants. Yeah. I, I would say. Yeah, I would um, say so, too. So let's take off one for that. It's there, but it's not egregious. So that gives us a six plus six plus seven plus seven plus six minus one for a grand total of 31 points, putting the Sidiford mystery in fourth place behind the man in the brown suit, the murder at the vicarage, and the murder of Roger Ackroyd. It is officially three points ahead of the mystery of the blue train and the secret adversary, which are now tied for fifth and sixth place. We will be updating our rankings. It's a little surprising, but I quite enjoy this one. I'm glad that it's... Yeah, I think we both agree that we actually liked reading it. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's remarkable in any way, but I mean, it's very enjoyable. It's very enjoyable. I I suspect that there will be many a novel to be rated a bit higher, especially in the next few novels to come, but we shall see. We'll keep an open mind. Join us 
us next week for another Poirot short story, The Lost Mine. Gotta get back to our good friend, Hercule Poirot. Of course. We only have two more stories left in the Poirot Investigates collection, at which point we will perhaps be moving on to another detective for our short stories, but we will see about that. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. You can find us on Instagram at All About Agatha. You can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. And if you are listening to this on iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review us. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.